Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. episode 122 of the Keith Law Show. My guest today is going to be Russell Carlton, who many of you may know from his work over at Baseball Prospectus. He is talking to me about his new book called The New Ball Game, which will be out on June 13th from Triumph Books. Uh, You may also know him from his first book, The Shift from 2018, which I greatly enjoyed and have often recommended to people who read my first book, Smart Baseball, and asked, what can I read next? I think The Shift and Smart Baseball work very well together. We are working in similar veins, but we end up hitting on a few of the same topics, but a lot of different ones as well. Uh, Since my last podcast, I have filed something. It has not run yet over at The Athletic, but a minor league scouting uh, post. I went to a couple of games over the weekend while I was actually in North Carolina to go see some draft guys. Schedules changed. One guy got hurt, so ended up rerouting, going to a little bit of minor league stuff. There will also be a draft blog scouting post covering what will be my last two draft scouting trips of the year. I finally saw Max Clark, an Indiana high schooler who is in my top five. I've now seen all the players who were in the top 10 on my last ranking. Now that may change. Um, but at least I have seen that many guy, those guys in particular, and, and probably more potential first rounders this year than certainly in any year I can remember. It's been a long time since I did this well in terms of seeing draft prospects. I was helped by weather. I was helped by players playing each other. I was helped, I think, by the fact that the draft is strong. So we had a pretty good idea early who the top guys were, who I needed to see at the top of the draft. So things just generally worked out. My hope then is next week to do a mock draft. I don't want to promise that because that plans could change. Obviously, editorial plans could change, but I think it's about time for that. And then following that at some point, we'll update my ranking to go from 50 names to 100 names, which is where I leave it. I will I will write up more players than that, but I generally do not rank more than 100 for the draft. My guest today is Russell Carlton, author of the upcoming book, The New Ball Game, The Not-So-Hidden Forces Shaping Modern Baseball, due out on June 13th from Triumph Books, as well as the 2018 book, The Shift, The Next Evolution in Baseball Thinking. He's written for Baseball Prospectus and spent a year as a consultant to the New York Mets R&D department. Russell, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. So The New Ball Game is a very different book from The Shift. The Shift, to me, seemed a bit like um, more trying to explain, here's what's just going on in the game and the way that especially teams evaluate players or might manage things on the field. And in The New Ball Game, you're taking, I think, a much more top-down and more philosophical approach to explaining sort of how the sport is evolving 
moving forward, especially since we've seen a lot of changes in the last four or five years since you wrote the shift. So can you talk to me just a little bit about what were your goals in writing this book and what did you go into it trying to do that was very different? Because you said after the shift, you didn't think you were going to write another book. Yeah, I, I never thought I'd write another book, but uh, you kind of get the bug every once in a while. And I, I decided, ah, why not? But with this one, I, I said, well, and when I pitched it to the publisher, I said, hey, I want to write a book about we have seen a, a, a period of very rapid changes. And in the book, I, I go through and I say, there are certain graphs in here that end with a thwump and things that have changed very, very rapidly over you know, the course of probably seven, eight years. And, and you can kind of see that when you, when you graph them in terms of strategies and pitcher usage and things like that. And I said, I want to I write a book about where all this came from and how did we get to this new ball game? And, and, and so I, I said, I, I'm going to do that. And, I'm, and I tried to go through point to point and say, you know, how, why is pitcher usage different? And then, and I, and I think that's where it kind of all starts from. And then, well, what is the knock-on effect of that? And how, do, how does that shape roster construction? How do those things go forward? And so trying to trace some of those forces that are acting on the game right now to say, you know, there's a real reason why this is all different. And you may, you may or may not like it, but there are real reasons why. So let me jump into one of the questions you pose more towards the end of the book, which is you, you ask rhetorically, did analytics ruin baseball? And obviously <laughs> anybody who's active online, especially um, if you write even a little bit in an analytical vein, you will hear that refrain from fans and I come in as I really don't think that statement's terribly fair. It's certainly overly right. simplistic, but you right. go into it into some much greater depth. So why don't you answer the question here? Did <laughs> analytics ruin baseball or did they save baseball or something in between? It kind of did in a, in a way, I think, but not in the way that I think most people are, are thinking about. I mean, much of what gets blamed on analytics was, you know, I mean, those of us who sit around and and I like me a good spreadsheet, but those of us who who do that sort of work, we're mostly cataloging what the changes were. But I do think one of the things that that did happen and that we do need to reckon with is that analytics, not so much the actual practice of it, but the philosophy behind it, turns everything into just a dry, uh, dry exercise in hacking the game. And you think about, well, you know, is this the best use of, uh, of a pitching staff? Could we figure that out? Yes, we probably could. Um, is it the most entertaining way to use a pitching staff? Yeah, well, you know, that, I guess that depends on, on what you like. Um, but it, it, it turns the game into that. And I think that one of the ways that, that baseball has changed. And I think that one of the ways that MLB is trying to fight back against is that it has turned the game into something that has lost some of its power to tell a story. And it's just, it's not quite as, you know, you, you think back to there were different types of strategies that people would use. And, you know, some of them were inefficient. Some of them weren't the best way to win. And we, we now realize that. And everybody, once they realize that went, well, we should pick the one that wins the most. Well, some of that variability was a lot of fun. It was kind of fun not to know what was going to happen next. So, I mean, you think about how the game, how the game has, has gone, and there's just been a, a lot of homogenization around it. And I think that's what people are missing. And so, you know, I, I, I knew what I was doing very playfully with, with titling that, uh, 
uh, that chapter, Dan Ellick's Room Baseball, because it's the one that everyone's going to jump to. And, you know, I think there's there's a certain amount of, of blood that we have on our hands when we when we answer that question. We need to we need to talk about what what happened to the game and what we lost along the way. You know, Joe Sheehan has made the argument a number of times, especially in his newsletter, where he just sent, essentially says pitchers are wizards. Right? They are throwing yes. harder than ever before, which you talk about quite a bit, um, yeah. but they can also do things with the ball that yeah. we've really never seen before with more teams, um, with the, the more granular physical data that they're getting from uh, StackCast and similar devices, similar systems, and mm-hmm. teams employing physicists and teams employing biomechanics experts. Um, Mike Petriello had a great piece, uh, I think just yesterday on Yenier Cano for the Orioles, who went from mm-hmm. you know, essentially like an extra guy, a desperation reliever call up to maybe the best reliever in baseball so far this year. Uh, and a, a lot of it is just about pitch shaping and taking advantage mm-hmm. of seam shifted wake, for example. And that is where I struggle a little bit because I say that's a place where analytics broadly defined, I guess. It's hurt the game a little bit. You go into that quite a bit in the book in the, in the, the rise of strikeouts mm-hmm. and what is that doing to hurt the game. But I keep running into a wall there where I say, well, this is just players trying to get better. Isn't that oh, what yeah. we want? Isn't that what we do? Yes, absolutely. And that's, you, can't, you can't put 30 teams in competition with one another literally telling them you got to get the better of this other team and not expect them to take every legal advantage that they possibly can think of. And, and that's, you know, I mean, you're not going to get, you are not going to get people going back out. I mean, people are right now at, you know, standing in front of a camera, shaping up a learning a good slider and learning how to shape it and control it and building it up step to step and then not expect them to use it. And yeah, that's going to lead to more strikeouts. Pitchers throw what for what the last 20 years, four and a half miles an hour harder than they did. Uh, slider usage, if you look at it, is way up because, you know, it's it's a pitch that people have learned and, and, and grown with. And you don't have to just kind of uh, you can you can learn it in little bits and pieces, which is a better way is, you know, I'm, my background is a child psychologist. And that's one of the pieces I bring into the book. You you can teach somebody how to 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 build those pitches one piece at a time to where they can, you know, they, they feel a lot more comfortable with it and they feel comfortable using it in places that they didn't before in the past. You know, you establish the fastball and then you bring out the, the bendy stuff. And, you know, if and that changes how how hitters or hitters have to approach the game. If I say, well, all right, I'm I'm I can't just sit here and look fastball on here because this guy might go to his breaking stuff. And, you know, how does that change it? Well, now pitchers have the upper hand. There's a lot more strikeouts in the game and they're not as fun to watch. And, you know, people have complained about that. And I can't say I blame the, the pitchers for doing that. I can't say I, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I fault anybody for that. But there is a certain amount where the game has evolved to something that was kind of more boring. And um, whether analytics is, get, is the, uh, uh, the, the, the culprit there, I don't think you're right. I think it, it doesn't deserve that that reputation. But at the same time, you know, it's it's something that that we have to consider in terms of what do we want, want this game to look like. That is an, another issue that I struggle with quite a bit is what do we want this game to look like? I think at the top level, one thing we can kind of all agree on is we want the best players out there doing mm-hmm. their things. And we want, and to me, that often involves people who are 
um, either tremendous athletes or tremendously skilled or maybe some combination of both. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've come to worry about, because I do a lot, as you know, and I think many listeners know, I do a lot of stuff with the draft and mm-hmm. worry that we are now selecting on certain criteria in the draft that mm-hmm. whether they, they may make teams better, they may find the best players, mm-hmm. but they may not lead to the best visible game on the field, for example, like right. denigrating or deprecating is probably the better word, speed, for example. And it's not like teams have gotten right. away from it entirely, but mm-hmm. until this year, stolen bases had just been generally declining. And right. um, so as a result, we were going for those players less in the draft. And then I think promoting them less aggressively through the minors mm-hmm. as well. And yep. so, but this year I bring that up because of course this year we've had some rule changes and we're seeing stolen bases make at least a temporary right. rebound, hopefully a longer term one. Do you have thoughts on, uh, what are your thoughts on, trying to address the strikeout problem, given the fact that pitchers aren't going to stop throwing as hard or stop throwing as much breaking stuff. Right, exactly. And I mean, now you have to look into things and I I get into this in the book too, is you have to think about, well, do we need limits on the number of pitchers that are on a roster? And there's kind of been some talk about that. Uh, Do we need to think about, um, you know, we we already have a three batter uh, minimum rule for relievers. Do we need to extend that a little bit? With the thought of, you know, maybe if you can't make the pitchers worse as they're coming through and learning their craft, well, you could at least have them pitching when they're a little more tired and have, make sure that, you know, you can't just run a fresh guy out there every inning um, and, 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 and make pitchers do a little bit more um, to kind of shape the game that way. So, I mean, you're, you're starting to look at, well, as, as pitcher development has become much more... I don't know, I guess more technologically based and, and, and there's just a lot more in it. Um, you know, do we have to change the rules to kind of combat that from other angles? And so, you know, but I think, you know, you, you start changing some rules and people get all, all up in arms because, well, you know, that's not the way that the game has always been played. Why, are, why do we have to change it this way? And I think that there's a head-on collision that's coming from understanding you know the the traditional optics of the bait of baseball and how the game is is philosophically seen versus putting an entertaining product on the field and i think it's something that especially at at the major league baseball level they haven't really had to confront up to this point but now you hear you know people like theo epstein is 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 talking a lot about you know trying to get trying to nudge the game in certain ways that's more entertaining for the least amount of intrusiveness. And I think they've kind of run through the things that they can do that are minimally intrusive. And now they have to start thinking about, well, how do we want this to look and how do, how different should it look from the way the game was played 50 years ago? Um, and, and, and those are not easy questions. And, and in the book I talk about, you know, those are the questions that I think the analytic movement has a hard time with because we aren't trained to think like that. We're trained to think of these are the rules. How do we exploit them? But you know, what, what should the rules be to, to make the game more interesting, more fair, more, uh, more compelling, a better storytelling device, however you want to look at that. So, I mean, I think that that's the, that that's, that's the dynamic that, that kind of runs through the book and that, that I, when I was writing it, I found myself really digging into. You talk a bit about, War wins above replacement in the book, which is I think you and I probably share a belief. We sort of have a love hate relationship with the with that particular metric where 
it's really useful in a lot of contexts. It is flawed. And you go into some of those flaws. Sure. I like to talk a little bit about that. And it has become sort of the bete noir of the people who are anti-analytics, who just reject war out of hand without, I would argue, even understanding what it, what it necessarily means. Because I think if you sit down, when I've tried to do this in person with, with people, often people who, who you know, are not necessarily readers of, of our kind of writing, sure. I sit down and explain to them what we're trying to do, that makes sense. They understand mm -hmm. what the idea is. Of course, you want to be able to value a player's total production. What, what is wrong with that? Um, you know, I've had problems, for example, I think war does a really bad job with platoon players, for example, yeah. as do many of the right stats. Like I like oh, WRC plus sure. it struggles. If you've got say a left-handed hitter who never faces a left-handed pitcher, it, it gives you a, uh, it's misleading. I don't, don't want to mm -hmm. say it's wrong necessarily. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about your love hate relationship with war. And, and particularly if you want to go into when major league baseball toyed with using war in some of its calculations, I, I really enjoyed your passage where you talked about your uh, rather strong feelings on that particular subject. Oh, and I, when that happened, you know, there were folks who were poking around and they, they asked me for a quote. And I said, that's a terrible idea. It was one of the things that they talked about. <laughs> that's, it, it, it was a terrible idea. One of the things that we, that happened it, to kind of catch people up is during the last CBA uh, negotiation, there was actually talk about replacing the arbitration system with basically with war and then having, you know, a pile of money and it would be uh, divvied out this way. And they never really got too deep into the, the details of that. And I'm sure that was all behind closed doors. But what leaked out was that, yeah, they were thinking about using war. And then eventually it became they have the arbitration bonus pool, which is which is based on war. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there's a the love-hate relationship comes from over the last 20 years as war has developed from its you know very infancy to now kind of being the 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 stat that people make fun of and and I'm sure there's an Edwin Starr reference that's about to happen somewhere out yeah, there. Yeah, not on this podcast. <laughs> but um but there's you know there's there's a point where um where war w was going to be, you know, become the insider stat. And I mean, it is used on the insides. And I mean, I made reference to, I've worked uh, with consulted to a couple of front offices and I mean, they, even the janitors speak more in, in major league front offices. Um, but there, you know, this, this was actually putting money in people's hands based on war, which was developed at a time when, you know, those of us who did analytical work were not welcomed in the game. And we came up with this stat. It was very independently based. It was, it was, it was crowdsourced. It was very much um, there are little pieces that that have gone here and there that you know nobody can say, oh, I did that or I I did all of that. No, it was a bunch of little things that happened, and so it became a very independent, community-based thing. Well, now, what happens if you know we go along and we realize something needs to change about war, and that has happened? We get better data sources. We learn more. We think better thoughts, you know, we, we have a better idea of what really drives value in the game. Well, if I say, okay, let's, let's change this piece and, and other people agree with that. Well, who gets to be that gatekeeper? And especially when there's money involved, who gets to move those millions of dollars from one person's bank account to the other? And so that is, that's, that's kind of the place where war is right now. It, it got successful and in a way that I don't think the people in the analytic movement were, were fully prepared for. So I think that, you know, that's one of the things that those of us who, who work as analysts and write about this sort of thing, 
uh, that we have to be careful of in in the next few years is how do we maintain that 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 bit of independence while at the same time realizing that you know now there are people who have millions of reasons to watch every little decision that gets made. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have a chapter called, uh, I believe, Actively Stupid, which I yes. uh, greatly, greatly enjoyed the title, um, <laughs> where you – and that's one of the chapters here where you, you get away from the sort of more granular stuff you discuss in The Shift, and, and I love it. I really enjoyed seeing your thoughts on this, but where you talk about the minor leagues and player development and the extremely penny-wise and pound-foolish ways in which many, I guess not all teams, but many teams manage that side of the right. business. So um, explain yourself. What is so actively stupid? And, <laughs> and even since you, obviously you filed the, this book even a few months ago, and I think we've seen sort of smaller changes, right. but do you think, I guess, let me ask more generally, do you think things are starting to head in the right direction? Yes. And part of that, and I mean, you know, I, I part of the problem with writing a current events book in baseball is that it has to freeze at a certain moment and then current events keep happening. And I mean, I wrote this, you know, Actively Stupid was about um, the way that minor league players were were paid very, very, very low wages. There was no guaranteed housing. The food was the food selection was terrible. They weren't they weren't taking care of their players in that way. Um and then uh, news broke a few months ago that the, uh, the players had unionized and that there was a, um, a, a collective bargaining agreement, which will hopefully address some of those issues. And, you know, we'll see how, how that all happens. Um, but, you know, what I looked back on, and this is something I've been writing about for about 10 years, and it was, you know, I'm, I, I am a, a, a psychologist by training and I work in public health. And one of the things that I looked at when I, you know, I started looking at, you know, 10 years ago, and I said, wait a minute, I, I figured minor league players would be very, very well taken care of. The, you know, they are theoretically, they're going to produce millions of dollars in excess value in, in, in a few years. So hopefully, you know, we, we take as good care as we can of them. And I went, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. I looked and I said, you know, that sounds like people who are food insecure and housing insecure. And when you have that, and this is something that I, I've done research on, just in general, is that your body reacts in ways that are not conducive to good development, whether physical or mental. And minor leaguers have a lot of physical and mental development that they need to do to become major league baseball players. And I said, well, why, why on earth are you doing that? So I set out to say, okay, how much would it cost to bring people above that line of just basic food insecurity or housing insecurity? 
you can go and you can you can do it in different ways. And it would be a few million dollars of new spending is what it, what I came up with. And I said, okay, we have all these analytics and we have all of this ability to convert from additional, you know, additional hits and runs and all that stuff into what that's worth in terms of money. And then you just look at it as an investment decision and you say, would you spend $4 million, for example, if someone said the payout is seven? Well, of course you'd do that. That's, you know, that you, you don't need an MBA to figure that one out. And so what I said was, you know, it's kind of actively stupid the way that, that this is being structured. You want to make sure that you're taking care of the minor leaguers as humans, as people, and, and making sure that they have everything they need, because that is going to aid in their growth and development. And, you know, and I even showed, I said, you know, look, the types of guys, and I use the, the draft bonus system because you have some guys who get, you know, a gazillion dollars because they were picked one, one, and you get some guys who get a thousand bucks and a hat and that's really it. And we see that over time, the guys who get bigger bonuses are able to sustain their performance from level to level by a little bit each time. But, you know, if, as you go up through the levels, um, but it compounds on itself over, you know, a guy's four, five, six year journey from rookie ball up to where he's a major league player. And so, you know, if you can just claw back those, um, those little bits of value over time, then it, it eventually builds itself to where you have a better set of players, even if they're just better end of the bench emergency call up, you know, uh, guys who, you know, a guy you just need to cover. Uh, five innings in the second game of a double header and he doesn't really do all that much you know even if you have a guy who who's who's doing something like that and it's just a little bit better those little bits of value can add up enough to where you cover your costs for what it would it would take to do it plus you know you're actually treating humans better which is a good thing but hey you know we can't possibly have that but you know in, in baseball you have to speak the language of investment um, but at the same time, it's a good investment to treat your people well. And minor leaguers are are uh, are, are a, a very good case on on how that works. And one of the arguments I've made um, around essentially encouraging players, the, the shorthand I use, I'm not the only one, is is take the money, right? If some major league team is willing to give you, the dollar figure would vary for for different players, but you know, a million dollars or more to sign and begin your pro career. You should probably take it. One of the arguments I've made, and this is particularly true for high school pitchers, uh, generally if you're getting offered that kind of money, it's because you throw hard, is the major league team that might sign you has a real long-term interest in you, in developing you, and also in keeping you healthy. Whereas if you go to college, that college coach, no matter what he says, and he may even have good intentions, but ultimately his interest in you is maximum of four years and probably right. three if you're any good. Uh, and so we've seen plenty of pitchers obviously go to college and get overused to the detriment of their long-term arm health and their professional careers. And it seems to me major league teams that are not listening to you, not doing the things you're advocating here, are wasting a pretty good, not just wasting an opportunity with the players they have, but also with the players they might get too and be able to point to, mm -hmm. no, look at these great living conditions. Look at all of the things we're offering you versus going to college. And oh, by the way, we'll still pay for you to go to college if baseball doesn't work out. Sure, yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's stories around the bend of, of teams that have taken more of that approach and said, hey, you know, we are going to 
and some of them very quietly and some of them a little more loudly, but some of them have said, you know, look, we're, we are going to take the approach that, um, that we're going to, to go all in on you as a human being and to say, Hey, this is the, the, we are, we are going to take care of as much as we possibly can because you are a long-term investment for us. And we have every, we have every reason to want you to be healthy. And, you know, but you also look that back and say, well, you're also building a good relationship with with that player. And maybe they'll they say, you know, it comes they they make the majors. It comes to be the end of their arb years and they can go anywhere they want. But they're a little more likely to say, hey, you know, I might want to just stick around because these people were good to me. And I mean, maybe I could get a couple more million dollars here and there, but I, I'm OK with with that because, you know, these people these people are kind and, and you know, you're going to build an organization around that, they're probably still going to continue to be kind to me in that way. And, and so you kind of clear some surplus value that way. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a way that is not probably efficient in, in the way that we normally think of that word um, in the short term. And I think that that's something that the analytic movement has, has incentivized is thinking very short term about how, what is efficient Um but I think that it's it's the sort of thing that the teams are kind of realizing, hey, I think we got that one wrong and we need to think in a longer term way about, you know, and, and again, it, it, it it's a very naked uh, reason that they do it. They want to be better than the other 29 teams, um, but but they're realizing that that's the way that you do it is that um, if you're treating people well, you're, you're going to be much better off. Well, last thing I wanted to ask you about from the book is, again, more of a philosophical thing, but I found this so interesting. You start describing a, a game in terms of the run prevention rather than the run scoring and point out that the narrative framing that we everybody uses when talking about a game, um, as opposed to talking about individual players, is from the run scoring, right? They, right. they scored – um, or, or maybe sometimes in the sense that they failed to score. Not that the other team successfully prevented them from scoring, but they failed. They missed some opportunity. And mm. I would love to talk to uh, have you talk a little bit about why you presented it that way, because it, it is a great sort of thought experiment that does, right. you say, this probably made you uncomfortable. It did. It sounded wrong mm -hmm. to read yeah. about a game from that perspective, even though I enjoyed it. And it made me um, rethink the way it probably will re make me rethink the way I write sometimes, but it is definitely counter to the way I'm used to writing about baseball, reading about baseball, and even thinking about baseball. Yeah. And it, it started off my, my wife was, was originally born in Moscow and, uh, her brother, my, her brother, my brother-in-law is, is still over there. And so he was visiting one time and he asked me, you know, he asked me to what, what was baseball and he, he doesn't know the game. It's just, it's not popular over there. And so I kind of, oh boy, there's that question. And anybody who's ever tried to answer that question knows the, the terror that runs through you as you try and do that. So I, you know, I very dutifully, I picked up a piece of paper and I drew, okay, here's the foul lines and here's the bases. And I put a little thing, here's the batter. And I started explaining everything from the perspective of the batter. And then, you know, I, I thought, okay, I did an okay job doing that. And then later on, I'm like, well, why, why did I start with the batter? And if you look at baseball as from the from the starting point of the pitching of the of the pitcher and say all right what this really is is it's a game of run prevention but you know you know i grew up in the united states i grew up listening to united states culture all the movies all this all the, everything that i watched 
um, was always the one guy on a quest. And the batter is that one guy on a quest. And so, you know, we kind of identify with him. And it, it kind of feels icky to say, well, what about, you know, these nine guys out here working together as a team to suppress this one guy in his quest to, uh, to, to score a run? But if you look at baseball from that perspective and say, how can we best prevent runs, you know, and, and, and think of strategies in terms of how they affect run prevention, it makes, it makes the game make a lot more sense uh, from a strategic point of view and, and to say, you know, what we're really trying to do in baseball is to prevent the other team from, from scoring. And you look at, you know, the value of an out versus the value of a base or the value of, you know, a hit or something like that. Well, with an out, you get to three of those and it erases all of those other hits and runners and things like that. And, and, and a run is the penalty for not collecting three outs fast enough. And, but, you know, we think about games in terms of how you score the points. Well, the runs are the points in the game. And so that, it's it's a different way of flipping things around but i think that if people take the time and say well i'm going to i'm going to look at it this way it it might bring a few more things into focus and might make make things just kind of make more sense um and and maybe just you know a few more insights on oh that's why they do things that way my guest today has been Russell Carlton, author of the upcoming book, The New Ball Game, The Not-So-Hidden Forces Shaping Modern Baseball, which will be out on June 13th from Triumph Books. You can pre-order it at your local independent bookstore, bookshop.org, or wherever you buy your books. Russell, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Stay safe.